Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. Centre for Mental Health challenges policies, systems and society so that everyone can have better mental health. I'm Thea Joshi and in each episode I speak to people with their own experience of mental health difficulties, someone working in a specific area or a member of our team about mental health and social justice. And this month I sat down with Zizi Sahawan. Zizi's a mental health speaker and activist and also recently founded her own mental health charity for autistic young people. Zizi shared her own story about struggling with her mental health, receiving inpatient care and what's helped her towards recovery. We also talked about the need for more culturally competent mental health support and the inequalities facing autistic people who are struggling with their mental health. Just to say, our conversation does cover some difficult topics around self-harm and psychosis, so do exercise care and feel free to switch off if you need to. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So welcome, Zizi, to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to chat to you about some of my experiences and um, and about the kind of um, the status of mental ill health in, in today's community and society. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. So um, I know that you're a real trailblazer in terms of, you know, sharing your own experience, but also being involved in um, setting up your own charity, international committees, and somehow also fitting in a neuroscience degree in the midst of all of that. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. And I wondered if I could kick off by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your own story and kind of what brought you to this place and to working uh, within mental health. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a really good question. So um, I have my own lived experience and a lot of my lived experience drives the change that I want to make. I um, first started struggling when I was 11. I'm autistic and um, it wasn't until I started going to kind of secondary school that it really started to show with my kind of eccentric behaviour and really struggling with change and relationships and noise and sensory issues. And so yeah, I got I, I got unwell at eleven and started I was like depressed um and ran away from home. Um police were called and then um ended up get, getting referred to CAMS when I was thirteen, I think, is when I had my autism diagnosis. And then when I was fourteen to eighteen, that's when I was sectioned in psychiatric inpatient unit and it was a long time, four years of my adolescenthood. And I was moved moved from unit to unit. So as soon as my um, behaviour kind of escalated, I'd be moved to the next ward, um, the next kind of layer of security. So I, I went from a general adolescent unit to um, high dependency unit and then a psychiatric intensive care unit. And then the final place that was the last straw, the last resort for me was... Um, the last resort for me was a, a low secure. So low secure is a, a really type of um, secure environment and um, is really a place where if you um, are really self-harming really severely and you're super suicidal, um, but you, you're not aggressive and don't have a criminal record, that's where you go. The, the next most secure place is a medium secure, which is really only if you um, have a forensic history or you attack people. So it was really secure. Um, and it was really, really difficult. I was, um, I developed psychosis when I was 14 um, and they picked it up when I was an inpatient. I was really paranoid, couldn't read for six months because of how um, psychotic I was and, and not being able to read as well as hearing voices. And it was really difficult for me. I, um, yeah, that was really tough. And um, I 
ended up kind of on five to one. Five staff would have to stop me from hurting myself whenever I went to A&E. I was on one to one for six months. I wasn't allowed to go to the toilet by myself for six months in my low secure because of um, risk and things. Um, everything that I saw became a weapon for me. So I was surrounded by some really poorly young people and anything and everything became a weapon from pens to paper and toilet paper, like things that were normal and everyday, just standard became even water, like people would um, would water load, you know, it was just like all these different ways that people self-harmed and um, it became the norm for me to be around such chaos. Um, and I was restrained for an, an hour and a half at a time, um, sometimes twice a day, injected with medication twice a day, which would usually be kind of rapid tranquilization is what they call it. But I was not the worst. I was probably the most mild out of all of those people, which says a lot considering I was restrained for that amount of time. There were some young people who would um, kind of be restrained for six hours at a time. And um, the unit now has closed down, but um, yeah, there was a lot of restraint, a lot of restrictive practice, lots of blanket rules. Um, and it really shaped how I see the world now. Like it's made me who I am today because I wouldn't be where I am or who I am without having those experiences. But at the same time, as difficult as it was, it was life-changing and life-saving for me. Um, so it was in that that um, unit, the low secure, that they kind of said you're going to be here till you're 18, and I was 16 at the time. And they said you're going to be si you're going to be here till 18. Then afterwards, you're going to go into um, adults, and you'll be an adults from 18 onwards. Like it was just like a long-term thing. It was a, a given that I'd stay there for that long. But what was special about that low secure is that people listened to understand instead of listening to respond. And what I mean by that is they responded to risk, sure, but they got to know me as a person because it was so intensive and, and would have so much contact with the staff members for like one to one, five to one, three to one. Uh, like it would be like you'd really get to know the staff and they became my surrogate family. and. And um, I, I decided to get better after I had a really serious attempt that, me, that I was kind of unconscious and, and stuff. And so um, after that, um, I kind of decided to trust in the staff because I thought these guys aren't going to transfer me to the next unit when I get risky because this is the last resort. Um, and I think that helped me because it gave me that consistency um, in care that I knew they were going to stay. So I ended up doing some really intensive therapy for five months and I was um, self-harm free for about three months of that time and usually if you'd been self-harm free for three months you'd just be discharged but because they knew I needed that therapy and needed to stay they they kept me on the on the ward they let me go to the gym every day that was around the corner from the um from the unit and even though they didn't even have staff for restraints they always made sure there was a staff member to take me to the gym because they knew it helped my mental health and was part of my care. And I had a nurse, Emika, I just opened an email from him today um, and I update him every so often about um, how I am and he, I call him Oldie Moldy, so he always signs out as Oldie Moldy. And I nominated him for an award, a Royal College of Nursing award, and he got to the finals. and. Oh, he was brilliant. He was he under he was so culturally competent. He was trauma informed. Um, he every time I was upset, even if I wasn't in crisis, he knew that being upset was a precursor to crisis. So he'd always come and see me, and we'd spend maybe an hour talking. With, when the ward was so chaotic, you know, he would always come and speak to me, um, and he always made the time. Anyway, he he got to the finals of those awards, and 
um, he didn't win, which I was really bitter about. But he said that you know, even getting to the to the to getting an award was enough for him. Like it was not what he was expecting at all. And you know, he he's great and and um, he yeah became my kind of surrogate dad, I guess, when I was on the ward. And um, you know, he gave me really good care. My psychologist who did the therapy with me was absolutely brilliant. She's now on my trustee board for the charity and. It's really lovely that those people saw me when I was in my lowest, but they're also they've stayed to see me at my most successful. And then, um, so anyway, so I um that that's the unit. And then afterwards, I went into a less secure unit because I, I took charge of my care. I kind of said, no, I don't want to be discharged from here. I want to go to a less secure unit and get used to the community again. I want to reintegrate into society. I want to get used to having a cup of tea without um, it being made by someone else and them using the kettle. I want to use a kettle. I want to get used to metal cutlery, small things like that. Um, and so I did that. Um, I got there in January and, and said, I want to do my GCSEs. They said GCSEs would happen in April. Like you don't have a lot of time. I said, yeah, I want to do it. So I did my GCSEs in less than five months got A stars and, and all A to C grades um, and so that was really good and then um, got discharged, went into supported living, did my A levels, um, got A star, A star, A, B. I got 100% on some of my um, some of my psychology essays, I got 100%, 98% and so it was really good and then um, yeah I went into uni, got into uni and now I'm doing human neuroscience but also did loads of mental health activism and um and campaigning and um working with the Royal College of Psychiatry and the inpatient CAMS um network, started lecturing at universities about my experiences. Um I was also child in care, um cast as a child in care too. So um I talked about my experiences of having social workers and yeah, I've just done really well since so yeah, that's my story. Oh Zizi, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that because um I think for all of us listening to that um, both in this conversation and our listeners, I think it's so moving, but also it's such a, a story of hope. And obviously, you know, we know that recovery is not like a linear process and it's not like an A to B situation. We don't want to kind of reduce it like that. But to hear about how hard things were and the trauma of both the illness, but also the kind of, I guess, of being in those systems and structures and restraint and all of those things. And we know the trauma they cause. To, to then be achieving and doing all the amazing things that you're doing and and it's also really encouraging to hear stories of you know services who have really really helped people because we know that loads of people are supported by amazing services but obviously often and inevitably the ones we hear about are where things go horribly wrong and so it's lovely to to hear the hope in that so thank you so much for sharing that and um there's so many things I could ask you about more but I've got a ton of questions so we'll have to have you back on the podcast again but I guess in the context of all of that and all that you've just shared and now the work that you're doing and the activism you're doing, what are some of the key issues that you think are facing young people's mental health at this moment in time? Yeah, I think at the moment, reference this, not because I'm trying to bring up the past at all, but I think it's important and has shaped the face of youth mental health right now. But the pandemic, I know lots of people don't want to talk about it, but actually what the pandemic brought was a, a mental health pandemic um and so and i feel like young people were particularly affected by it and um yeah so i feel like we've got a pandemic of youth mental illness at the moment and i think there's an element of because there's higher demand 
there's higher awareness um there's, there's greater awareness of um different mental health problems and what services are out there um i think that because there's increased awareness that's that's caused a, a, an increased demand when you've got increased demand you need greater supply um and there's no you know if anything there's been reduced supply because um, you know, because of um, all the things going on in the media right now, you know, staff, nurses, doctors are striking. And so really, there's not enough provision of mental health services to meet that demand and that increased awareness. So it's great that there's increased awareness, but there's just that risk of um, there's not enough provision um, in mental health services to meet the overwhelming amount of young people who need support. I think there was a 30% increase in mental health referrals, which is around in Birmingham, it's 90,000 people, which is a lot. And if if there's not been additional staff, like that's, that's really difficult. And there's also been a lot, a lot higher acuity in mental health units because of the pandemic not being allowed to leave. And, and there's been a lot of aggression towards staff and lots of increased self-harm and suicidality. So um, we're really in a bit of a crisis at the moment, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and I'd have to agree with you that we uh, we know that across the board in adults and children, mental health is getting worse. And I think what's something we've talked about before and you were talking about increased acuity. And I think it's it's also that we know that a lot of those support systems, the earlier support systems and that kind of a lot of that safety net, a lot of that safety net has been removed or has been cut due to austerity and the pandemic and all of these all of these circumstances coming together to create something that's actually creating a situation that's really quite concerning. But I wanted to move on and talk about, obviously, earlier this year, we had you at one of our Festival Ideas events, and um, we were talking about children and young people, but you also mentioned you discussed the um, the barriers that can prevent people from racialized communities from getting the mental health support that they need. And I, I was just kind of interested to, to think of it with you about like what you see as some of the main barriers there. You know, um, I think the barriers for, yeah, the barriers for um, kind of BIPOC or kind of ethnic communities when it comes to mental health services is um, a couple of things. So access to services, but also help seeking. And so with help seeking behaviour, um, usually because there's a greater stigma in ethnic communities around mental illness. Um, I know that with me, um, my trauma when I was 11 was and with my parents doing an exorcism on me because they thought I was possessed instead of being unwell. And that's really common, really, really common, um, that there's this kind of demonization of mental ill health. Um, so usually in, in kind of South Asian communities, you get those kind of exorcism uh, scenarios in um, black communities is often kind of really hushed about what um, mental illness looks like um, and um, any cases of, of that in the community and black young people tend to um, develop psychosis and end up in psychiatric intensive care units instead of going through the normal um, help seeking routes which is usually GP first um, but usually these uh, this demographic this population doesn't get support until it's really in crisis there's also there, there's barriers in terms of um, feeling confident to, to seek help and usually like with me i think it was probably more stigmatized to ask for help than it was to actually struggle and um yeah and there's there's uh, there's loads of tiktoks that i watch now of kind of south asian people saying you know you have anxiety or you have depression like to other, like as a video um saying oh you have anxiety you have depression you know i you know um used to work 
um, seven days a week, I know 90 hours a week and, um, and I wasn't depressed. So why are you depressed? There's this kind of generational, um, stigma. Um, so I think stigma feel, feeds a lot into this kind of systemic problem. Yeah, that's interesting. And we were also talking about kind of struggling to access care or access like effective support and something that we've been talking a lot about. Um, and I know you have as well is this kind of idea of services providing more culturally competent or um, culturally informed or faith informed um, support. And I guess I was kind of interested to know, like, what your experience has been of that and kind of, you know, what, what do you think it looks like to provide more culturally competent mental health support? I think cultural competent services is an ideal which I don't think will ever be met. And the reason why I say that is because the, the model of mental health care that we follow in the UK is westernised and the, the services that are out there at the moment are not, not set up for people from ethnic communities. And that, that's a really big barrier. And so that cultural competency is, is something that I don't think will ever fully be 100% accomplished. But I think what culturally competent care looks like is being able to be informed of culture and using that knowledge to um, to impact kind of delivery of care. So I'll give an example. So with, with Emika, my nurse, who I um, you, you know, he got to the finals. He would sometimes if I um, it was kind of during Christmas where there'd be an expectation that everybody had to engage in those of activities, and if you didn't, you wouldn't have leave. Um, and so that was like a rule that if you didn't engage in all activities and then you, you wouldn't be allowed to go out on leave because you're not engaging. And I didn't want to engage in doing Christmas decorations because I was like, I don't even celebrate this. Why do I need to? Um, and then um, they were like, well, you just can't go on leave. Um, and then Emma got involved and said, no, actually, you've got to think about this, that this isn't Zainab's culture. She's the only brown person on the ward. You know, this isn't her norm. And so he said she is going to go on leave because she shouldn't have to get involved in an activity that has no bearings on on her. Um, And so that was actually really powerful for me because every other person on the ward would have just said, yeah, you're not going on leave and you're going to have to engage in all activities or we won't let you out. And they knew that going out was important for my um, mental health journey and recovery and going to the gym every day was important for me. Um, and so it was actually quite counterintuitive, I guess, that if I didn't do the activities, I wouldn't go on leave. If I didn't go on leave, I'd end up deteriorating. So it it wasn't right. But but having Emma could do that was really important. And um, he, I think, with cultural competency, there's this idea of equality and equity. Um, um, I'm not sure. Like the difference between that is equality is when you give everybody the same opportunity, but equity is giving everyone the same opportunity, but um, tailoring support so that each person with different needs is able to um, thrive in in the situation that they're in with the right reasonable adjustments that they've got, meeting those different needs to be able to to perform well. And so, um, in NHS mental health services, there's no, I guess, there's no kind of provision for meeting equality and equity in 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 ethnic communities engaging in um in mental health services um, and so i think that's something that's important too thank you so much easy and i know there's so much more we could talk about there um we just published a fact sheet yesterday on muslim mental health and we were looking quite a lot within that at um access to faith-informed services uh, we actually published a blog by um, a colleague of ours called Zainab um, 
about her own experiences as a Muslim of, of trying to access um, support, which kind of acknowledged her faith as well, you know, as well as her culture and, and the struggles there. So we just we're just very aware that there's a there's a huge amount still to do on that. There's a there's a really long journey ahead, but it's really helpful to hear some of your thoughts on that and your own experiences as well. I do want to ask you about um, your new charity. So it's Emotion Dysregulation and Autism. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so um, Emotion Dysregulation, or EDA for short, is a, a youth mental health charity for autistic young people. So our vision is to see a world where autistic young people no longer receive inpatient care for their um, mental health difficulties. And I guess we're, we, we've been born from lived experience. So, you know, I talked a little bit about my, my own lived experience, but throughout my activism, I kind of did a lot of speaking. I did a lot of um, international events in front of royalty and um, won awards, parliamentary award, British citizen award, Diana award. And I felt like I, you know, engaged in loads of um, different kind of co-production boards within the trust, helped raise a million pounds for other charities. Um, but I think I, I wanted to stop talking about the change that needed to happen in youth mental health, but I wanted to start doing and I wanted to be the change that needed to happen. And so that's why I set up Emotion Dysregulation and Autism. And I got together a trustee board who are absolutely brilliant. I love my board. Um, and um, they're like um, my team, I guess. And they're really, really supportive. They're really great. And I think 85% of all of us have lived experience. So we are lived experience led, which um, I think is a real credit to, to how we function. And um, the main two things that we provide is social action. So that's where we um, are working with campaigns and um, going into, uh, we started doing work in places of worship about um, talking about autism and youth mental health openly in different ethnic communities. So we went to a black majority church and that was really, really successful. Um, there was also a social action event that we were funded to, to um, to do, which was funded by the Commonwealth Games, um, which was really big and, and we were really happy to get that funding and we had some young people uh, with lived experience of autism to talk about their experiences and, and talk about what they thought needed to change in the system and we brought along policymakers, so the young people were keynote speakers and the policymakers, they weren't there to talk, they were there to listen, they were the keynote listeners, so the power was given to youth voice um, and it was really successful, 80% of people said that they felt they knew um, and understood more about autism and the overlap with emotion dysregulation and 100% of people said they'd come again. So I guess I should, should um, explain what emotion dysregulation means. Um, so emotion dysregulation is when you struggle to to communicate and express emotions leading to um, self-harm and suicidality. Um, so um, a lot of what we what we do in the peer support element is trying to create um, a, a peer support program to help autistic young people who are leaving the inpatient system um, to reintegrate back into the community by providing them with social action opportunities and um, stabilization skills. Um, so we, we train our peer support workers in um, dialectical behavioral therapy for autism. Um, and give them those stabilization kind of therapeutic skills, but also um, work with them to find education, employability, social action, volunteering opportunities to help them get in the community and, and stay in the community. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about about the charity. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Susie. And we will obviously link to the EDA website and, and handles and whatever in, in the show notes. But it's so exciting to hear what you're doing. And um, 
yeah that just sounds really amazing and again that kind of faith-informed culture like working with different communities as we've said is so so vital I know that this is kind of your bread and butter in a way but like for people who maybe know less about the subject can you just give us a brief insight into the overlap between mental health and autism we know that there are links there can you just unpick that a little bit for us Definitely. So autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder and there's a, it's a spectrum. So you have people with high support needs and low support needs. The main um, struggles are around social environments, sensory um, overload, and um, there's, there's loads of other um, struggles. Um, and it's also called neurodivergency. Um, mental illness is, is primarily an illness. And I guess um, where the two overlap is that Autistics are 28 times more likely to experience suicidality and 70% of autistics have an associated mental health problem alongside their autism. So there's a high kind of rate of comorbidity in autistic people. There's also, I think in, in the West Midlands, 57, I think, percent of um, all the kind of inpatient beds in the West Midlands for CAMS have autistic young people in them. So 57% of the whole um, proportion of West Midlands beds are autistic. And so there's a really high kind of rate of um, autistic young people having associated mental illness. And there's some particular things in autism that kind of causes additional mental illness. So something that is lesser known is that autistics um, struggle a lot with emotion regulation. Um, and so um, emotion regulation, meaning being able to control and manage emotion safely. Um, and so there's things around alexithymia, which is um, this this symptom, which means when you struggle to find the words to the emotion. So a lot of autistics will struggle to communicate and express emotions because they don't know what the word is or, or how to how to find the words to their emotions. So often there's a lot of kind of other behaviours and self harm, for example, that that does communicate that in a in a lot. Um, is in a less safer way and so and there's alexithymia there's also interception which is when um, an autistic is unable to feel or like kind of be in touch with feeling so this happens in kind of physical health um, in autism as well where an individual will not realize they're hungry until they're super hungry and will eat loads or an individual doesn't realize they need the toilet until they've wet themselves and so those is those are parts of autism um, and so interception also um, kind of co-occurs with emotion dysregulation because um, if you struggle to know that you're anxious or nervous or um, really low, then you'll only realise it when you're super low or like when you're in crisis. So there's that's the link between um, autism and, and mental ill health. Um, and then there's also things around rejection sensitivity dysphoria which is what autistics um, can experience and that's when you kind of have this perceived rejection or abandonment and there's a lot of co-occurrence with borderline personality disorder and autism because they're quite similar in some aspects but because like in borderline personality disorder you you have this fear of rejection and abandonment but in autism you've got this rejection sensitivity dysphoria um, rejection sensitivity dysphoria is more about feeling rejected in society because you don't know how, how to act socially, um, whereas with um, BPD it's more about trauma. And so I guess there's also an element of trauma in autism too, where there's a lot of kind of social injustice or systemic trauma because it's really hard to get a diagnosis. There's really long waiting lists. Usually your mental health deteriorates before um, you get a diagnosis and um, the difficulties in access to care for autistic people means that mental health deteriorates faster and there's added trauma from, from the system and 
I know that also it's um, in inpatient units, it's five and a half years that they usually stay. That's the average length of stay for an autistic person in an inpatient unit. So that systemic trauma, that institutionalization, that restrictive practice that's been inflicted on that person, all those things can can um, deteriorate mental health further. So that, that's the kind of link um, between the two and the kind of the crisis that we're in with um, autistic people being um, locked away in units for years and years. Thank you so much for just um, yeah sharing a few of the insights there. There's, there's so much more, again, that I could ask you about, but it's just really helpful to have that background knowledge when we're discussing um, this overlap between autism and mental health. And I, I know that um, as well as the, the obvious links that you've shared there, there's also this sense that often kind of standard NHS mental health services are not really set up well to support the needs of autistic people. Um, and that comorbidity, as you mentioned, means that they can more likely to fall through the gaps or not get the support they need. So I guess I was wondering what you think NHS services or other mental health services need to do um, to better meet the needs of autistic people. Definitely. I think I'd like to start this question, but the answer to this question by uh, referencing our charity ambassador. So Lindsay Bridges is our charity ambassador and she's so strong, so resilient. She's a parent of um, a, a girl called Lauren and Lauren died by suicide in um, February of 2022, um, died by suicide um, in an inpatient ward and, and Lauren was autistic. Um, and um, Lauren's story um, of kind of dying in inpatient care is not the only story that is out there. Um, where an autistic has has passed away and um, went in a place that they're meant to be looked after. And so I guess there needs to be a really drastic um, systemic change in how we look after autistic people in units. And there's a lot of, I feel like inpatient services is where autistics in crisis usually go to. But I think there needs to be a lot more early prevention in the community and trying to um, keep an autistic person in the community as long as possible before it's absolutely necessary for them to go into inpatient. I think there's something around community reintegration and having post inpatient support for autistics or even post diagnostic support um, for autistics. And um, something that we're doing as a charity is um, trying to create create this peer support program so that after um, inpatient, uh, an autistic young person is able to um, work with the peer support worker and their clinical team to, to stay in the community as long as possible so they avoid readmission um, and that they're able to stay in the community and live a life worth living, find an identity other than their autism and mental ill health and reduce self-harm, reduce um, suicidal ideation um, and that kind of thing. And there's actually massive savings in that. If there's, um, it takes, I think the, the money that it, the money for keeping someone in inpatient is £286,600 a year, which is a lot. But if you had a young person um, in our peer support who is in full-time 24-7 staff residential or supported living, it's £149,000. So it's 52% savings. So it's really good for the economy, reduces the economic burden of suicide. Um, in Birmingham, at one suicide costs £5.39 million, whereas in the rest of the England, it's £1.7 million. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of saving that could be made if we invested in better community provision rather than only investing in inpatient provision. Um, so I think that's the way forward is um, embedding um, autistics in the community um, and being able to manage their difficulties 
in their own home where they're comfortable they're with their loved ones their family because for example Lauren and Lindsay um, Lauren was um, held I think 230 or 280 miles away from her home in Bournemouth and that um, contributed towards kind of the distress that Lauren felt and, and really um, broke Lindsay's family um, and it's absolutely awful what's happened to, to Lindsay and her family and shouldn't have happened and um, that that's the reality of what will happen in the worst case scenario and we need to prevent that as much as we can by by investing in better community provision. Zizi, thank you so much for that. And again, I just feel like with all of these conversations, we have scratched the surface. And I just, I, I, I say this a lot, but I really would love to just carry on chatting with you. And um, so we will have to have you on again. But I wanted to just finish up by um, asking you um, what what you do to maintain your own mental health and your well being. Yeah, definitely. So my own uh, mental health and well being, I feel like a big a big part of. My recovery has been activism and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy campaigning and um, and helping people in the way that um, I do at speaking at events and that's a really it's been a really big part of my recovery and I think it kept me in the in the community so that's really important for me to do. Um, I think having a bit of a work-life balance and for me my thing that I love watching is Married at First Sight or Love is Blind and I like to binge watch it on a Sunday have a have a Sunday where I just binge watch Netflix every so often yeah <laughs> I absolutely love maths Married at First Sight and um, so yeah and um, I, I, I kind of tell mum oh, I'm gonna go on Married at First Sight and she goes I'll have a heart attack if you do <laughs> Um, so that's my thing and like going to the gym I used to like running I like weightlifting and um, journaling really helps me and um, I feel like journaling is something where people think what do you do when you journal but someone told me when you journal this is what it's about it's about thinking in ink and I really liked that and so um, that really helps me is being able to look at what I'm grateful for my goals my values if my values have changed and yeah, it, it really helps me. Uh, another thing that helps is having a bit of a sandwich in terms of my productivity. So if I've got a really busy day um, where I'm in meetings, I don't know, 8 till 8 p.m. and um, or I'm quite from having to go somewhere um, a bit further away, like go go um, to London or something for an overnight, I, try, I know that's going to take a lot of my social battery. Um, so I try to have something beforehand and after that is a bit a bit more chilled um, so that I'm able to um, have enough in my battery to, to cope on, on that in the busyness. So in my sandwich, the, the middle of the sandwich is my busyness and then the outsides are kind of my chill time. Um, so I might watch kind of lots of Netflix or I'll just make sure I've got loads of rest and slept a lot or I'll go, I'll go for walks. And, and um, so I try to have that. That's kind of a way of safeguarding my own mental health and well-being throughout um, trying to help other people that is amazing thank you so much for sharing that with us and I love I love those options there and um yeah it's lovely just to get that insight um Cece thank you so much for sitting down with us today it's been a real joy to chat to you and yeah we just wish you all the best for the new charity we will link to all of that stuff thanks for listening I really hope our conversation has inspired you in the fight for mental health equality we rely on support to fight for change, so please give what you can at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.